This episode of the Pacey Tapes is sponsored by Paul Lewis. Paul Lewis is a burlesque producer and fan based out of Atlanta, Georgia, slash Knoxville, Tennessee, and I am so, so, so grateful for his support. Hello, ducklings! This is Blanche Debris, and you're listening to the Pasty Tapes, a burlesque podcast by Show My More, the steamiest Asian dumpling. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Pacey Tapes. I am your host, Show My More, the steamiest Asian dumpling, recording live today from my closet in Chicago. I hope you're doing as okay as can be right now. Over the last few weeks, I've been stacking a bunch of projects on myself, definitely as an unhealthy coping mechanism. One of the things that I'm really excited about is I've redone the Pacey Tapes website. You can check it out at thepaceytapes.com. And I'm also working on some pretty big initiatives. Definitely stay tuned on the Pacey Tapes website to see those changes happen. This episode of the Pacey Tapes is sponsored by Paul Lewis. Paul Lewis is a burlesque fan, producer, all-around enthusiast based out of Atlanta, Georgia, slash Knoxville, Tennessee. Paul Lewis is the Pacey Tapes' first full episode sponsor. With Paul's sponsorship, I was able to bring to life an episode that I already was super, super jazzed about. Paul is a huge fan of today's guest, and I am so, so, so honored to bring you this conversation. Today's guest is the rock star of burlesque. Her performances are epic and inventive and just all around huge. She's performed seven times in the last nine years at the Burlesque Hall of Fame, which I think is absolutely wild. In addition to being a knockout performer, they're a producer, they're also the current director of programming for BurleyCon. This is a performer who truly knows how to turn it up to 11. This is my conversation with Iva Handful. Iva Handful, thank you so much for being on this episode of the Pasty Tapes. You're quite welcome. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm so excited to talk to you. I don't know if everyone out there in the world knows, but they will now, you know, assuming that the world listens to my podcast. Of course they do. Of course they do. Iva and I work together on Iva Fiero Productions, which is Iva's production company, and I'm your little social media manager. You are. Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing that. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me do that. I love it. I love it. And I was just telling Iva this before we hit record that I'm weirdly nervous to talk to her, which is really goofy because- (laughs) Especially when you hear my voice. Like, how can you be nervous with this voice? I don't know. You're just so cool. Anyway, Iva, let's, okay, let's jump into this interview. (laughs) There's going to be a lot of giggling in this interview too, everyone. So I hope you're laughing along with us or laughing at us. I don't know. Very serious. This is very, this is a very serious interview with my very serious boss and we're very serious people. Okay. Iva, before I ask you like your burlesque origin story question, which we'll get to, Something that I love about you is that your tagline is the rock star of burlesque. I love that dedication that you have, not just to rock and roll in terms of like performing to rock and roll music or all of that. It's like this rock star energy, this rock star aesthetic. And I find that I really relate to this. I was just telling someone earlier this week that when I was little, what I wanted to be when I grew up was a rock star. Well, it was three things. I wanted to be a rock star. 
Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a stripper because Demi Moore's striptease movie came out totally. like when I was little. I've never seen the movie, but I remember the poster and thinking, oh, yeah, that's all you need is the poster to. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, the other thing I wanted to be was a nun because obviously I didn't know what that was either. So that, that was for my thing. Have, I like black and white clothing. I mean, they wear that. This all like ties through together, right? A black and white mm-hmm. poster, black and white, white right. clothing, great rock and roll and a nun. So that's what I wanted to be. I obviously am not a rock star. I'm not a rock star in real life. I cannot play an instrument. I don't really sing. Tell me, <laughs> tell me about you and your childhood and like wanting to be a rock star and growing up into someone with this dedication to rock star vibes. Growing up in the Midwest, and this is totally um, stereotyping. There was, and actually Trent Reznor mentioned something about this when he was growing up too. You don't have dreams or you don't go into the arts, you have to have a job or a talent in that way. So there was no like, oh, so you're you're a ham. Great. Let's follow that. Like there was no fucking way that was gonna happen. Kind of learned piano and um and sax for like a summer each. And that's about it. I took dance in like eighth grade, but I hate group activities. So I was done with that and just continued on with just regular school and stuff like that. I was in um, ROTC, Marine Corps ROTC in high school. So there's some, I don't want to say dance, but choreography in there. And it's actually kind of hard choreography. There's a lot of stomping and a lot of hard hits, which is cool. As far as rock star though, not having any background, like singing, theater, anything like that. I grew up on MTV. So MTV started when I was young, like five or four. And we had cable, so I was able to watch that. And there was also another show called Friday Night Videos, which is basically another TV station's version of MTV, where they would just play music videos all night on Friday nights. So I grew up watching music videos. So that is what I know as far as performing is how to be all those 80s rock stars. And that's where that comes from. Uh, I didn't really do anything else in school that would say like, oh, you're a rock star other than ROTC. Now this is actually talking about it. It's the first time I ever correlated that choreography to how I kind of dance in like my goth or industrial dancing. Sort of the same thing. And then when I was in college, I started, I was a stripper at Deja Vu in Indiana at the time when I got in. So it would have been 1996. I feel like that was a good heyday for strippers, meaning they would encourage us to do big shows and do extra things and on stage, meaning not extra things like that, but like, you know, I, we would pay for all our own things, but like I could bring, I had a shower built and I, my mom built me like a piano on wheels that my friends from the nightclub pulled me out on and things Whoa. like that. So I didn't know I was probably doing burlesque then, but I totally was. Also while I was there, the main thing where I'm trying to get kind of circle back to the rock star part is that we had, for being a little shitty Indiana deja vu, we had amazing lighting system for the time. So the stage was shaped like a dumbbell. So two wide ends on either end, and then it comes kind of small in the center. And around that were small cam lights, large cam lights, a strobe light on either end of the stage, and a smoke machine coming out of the stage on either end of the stage. It also had a disco ball, laser light things that went, not like laser light, but like those lights that scan a room or like a dance floor or something like that, like those. Yes. And then we also had, so the private dancers were just like two or three steps up in these couches along the wall at the tops of the couches were the, were those like glass block that you see in like 80 showers. And we had blue lights running through those that were on a dimmer. So the DJ, cause at the time they didn't have like the electronic, like you can run a whole light board 
thing by programming it and walking away. They would play that light board like it was an instrument. And I was one, there was probably, there was some other performers or strippers that would do it too. But I would say that me and maybe a few of my friends were the only ones that would be like, do all the fucking lights. So they would do these lights that were just phenomenal and would go with every beat of the song as I ran around like a crazy person. So, so I got that rock star feel there. And then after graduating college, cause you know, you do that thing, like sounds like a movie, but once I graduated college, I had to stop stripping and get a real job. Not that it's not a real job, but that's just like the movie version um, because stripping is totally a real job and it's an amazing job. So I quit when I was 26 and went into accounting and then found burlesque uh, when I was 30, 30, 31. So basically grew up on music videos and then became a stripper with lighting, stage lighting that um, our light and sound guys would just fucking hammer down. Like they would, they would headbang while they were doing the lighting during my acts. So, so they were having like the, you know, they were having fun too. Right. Uh-huh. With it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you usually perform to a lot of the same songs. I mean, I had a, a you bring like your 250 or 400 CD book with you and like, and all of them were marked. Every CD was marked with like what songs you would dance to on what CDs. And so you go up there and pick it, but a lot of times you end up picking the same songs over time. So we ended up getting a rapport of like what lighting goes with this song. So we already knew what was going to happen when I walked on stage because I usually did all the same songs. So. Can you remember any of your go-to songs? Oh yeah. Um, well, Burn by Nine Inch Nails, uh, Super Not I did for Showgirl of the Year, um, which is a uh, Black Sabbath. So it's an original Black Sabbath song, then played by Ministry. I'm sure there were other covers between that. Ministry is an industrial band. And then Trent. Resner Nine Inch Nails did it as well. So Marilyn Manson's Beautiful People came out about that time. So we used to have not fights over it, but uh, but who would dance to it each night because everybody wanted to dance to it. And since it is the 90s, so you think about it, all the grunge music was played, all the industrial, uh, electronica, all of that was played. Techno was played at our club, which was really cool. And of course, 90s R&B. In 90s, we actually couldn't really play 90s rap because we had a terrible club owner who was racist. If it was black music, it had to be R&B, but we would sneak rap in when he was out of town. So, mm. yeah. But yeah, so all that good, amazing 90s music. And that's what I was bred on, basically dancing for five years straight. Was this club work, like this club experience, like from the lighting, from the music? Would you say that this is, I have a handful the one that we know and love today, her training ground, where she got her start, like this was like percolating in you? Mm, I don't know. I don't think so. I didn't know that I could be any more than just what I was in that club. Oh, let's let's like move forward then. Okay, then tell me about your burlesque origin story and when you discovered that you could be and that you are more than what you were in the club. One of my stripper friends moved with my husband and I up to Seattle from San Diego. We lived in an area where Tamara the Trapeze Lady had a weekly Friday night show. And we saw it in the weekly, like, cool person paper, The Stranger, just like Chicago has a reader, that type of thing. And so there was a burlesque show and she goes, oh, do you remember so-and-so talking about burlesque and that? And, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And so we went and saw it. and. I about died. I couldn't stay in my seat. I wanted to like jump up and not be on stage, but like 
jump up and ask, how do I do this? So one of the Seattle performers, Pigeon Von Tramp, and actually remember these things specifically, she was the box office person. So I asked her how to get started. And she told me about Academy of Burlesque. That was in the fall of 2006. So by, I think, I think our class started on my birthday in March in 2007, because I was that awkward person that walked in and was like, I don't have, I I think I actually said, I don't have any friends. Why? Because I didn't when I moved there because Seattle is hard to move into. And so I only had my one friend that was living with us, but um, but we estranged and I still have no idea why. She eventually moved out and wouldn't talk to us as she moved out. So so I literally had no friends. And so I think I said something to that that when I was in my 101 class. But that's how I got started. As soon as I could sign up, I signed up. So Ivan, what was it like once you were in the classes? Did that love continue to grow? It felt hard because there were rules and I didn't have any rules and there was no training when you're a stripper. Having rules actually made me cry and call my other friend who was a stripper with me. And I said, they won't let me lip sync. (laughs) I don't know how I'm supposed to dance if I'm not mouthing the words. And she's like, you'll figure it out. And I did. But that was my big strain was that but I don't remember the specifics. I can tell you one, well, there's two, two things that I can kind of see in my brain from that class. One is when Indigo changed my whole thought process on performing. So I was a mannequin in a store and I kept coming to life when the mannequin dresser turned their back. Of course, I was going to wear sexy clothes because that's what you do in your 101, at least back then. Like maybe now, even I don't know, because I haven't been in a 101 class in forever to see like if the ideas, like people's initial ideas are the same. But I feel like that's kind of a a really good 101 because sometimes people don't get to wear sexy clothes ever. So they're like, I'm going to dress in sexy clothes. So I'm sitting there with Indigo on a one-on-one with her, um, getting close to the, like having to finish your creating your act. And she said, what if I would just, you know, what if um, instead of wearing sexy clothes, you wore funny clothes, like things that look silly on. And that just blew my goddamn mind, blew my mind. So instead of sexy clothes, I wore like a long jean skirt and a sweater vest. And then for my second outfit, it was a muumuu or first outfit was a muumuu. Second one was a jean skirt and vest. And then the third one was those terrible, like those track suits that were terry cloth. Yes. Like a juicy, like, yes. Like a juicy thing, which I mean, honestly, they look cute on girls. There was just, I would never be seen in one personally, but I would also not really make fun of other people for wearing them. But, um, but I thought it was funny that I'd wear one. So I was wearing, that was a huge turning point for me, even as early as being in the 101 that taking what you think you should do and then flipping it on its head and going, oh, fuck that and doing something completely different. That's way more entertaining than seeing me in something sexy, honestly. Although now that I know who I am as a performer, seeing me in something sexy would be really fucking funny too. So so that's number one. The second thing is uh, the Shanghai Pearl was one of the people who sat in once you created your act and had to do it in front of Indigo and a few other people. She was one of the people and it was nerve wracking as hell because she was so amazing and obviously still amazing. So I just remember sitting there and she thought my act was really good and I just about died. What a solid foundation. Did I ever tell you where I got my name though? No, let's talk about that. 
people somehow think it's really funny, which I think is funny now, actually. It is funny. There was a, I didn't know how to think of a name. I have no wit in me whatsoever. My brother got it all. And me and my sister just sit here not knowing what words to say ever. So I didn't know how I was going to come up with a burlesque name. And so I'm looking online, probably searching for burlesque names or whatever. And this guy who had been working on websites and like learning how to do certain things on websites built a burlesque name generator. So all I did was hit his button a bunch of times and I have a handful, even with the two L's came up and that seemed to fit very well. So I got my name from a burlesque name generator. I emailed the guy to make sure it was okay. And he thought it was the funniest thing that an actual burlesque performer was using his burlesque name generator when he didn't intend it to be actually anyone to use it. It was just a test website. I can't believe that it's from a random name generator. I mean, it's so perfect. Obviously my boobs are ginormous, but also you know, props and how ridiculous acts get. Yeah, I've been named uh, by Jojo Stiletto. I have a handful of props. It works in many situations. Which is what makes that story even more hilarious. Right. Because if you told me like, oh, I have a handful because I have giant boobs. Honestly, that's what I assumed. (laughs) No. Okay, I can see why people think this is funny because it is funny. Speaking of I have a handful of props, you have a ton of really over-the-top, super prop-heavy kind of acts. And I don't want to say just like prop heavy, like set heavy and beautiful and intricate and fucking giant. I think some of my favorite photos whenever I go through after a show that Iva Fiero Productions puts on is looking for the ones of Sawyer Mo where he's cleaning up after you. <laughs> Poor Sawyer. <laughs> it's hilarious though. <laughs> um, and you know, you've recently debuted another giant prop kind of act. Like if people go through mm-hmm. your you know, your handful, for lack of a better word, uh, your handful of like Behoff reels, right? They'll see big props there. Can you talk me through, I guess, some of your favorite big prop acts that you have and talk to us about how these ideas come together? The Prince Piano is a work of art. And if I die, they're going to put me in it and then burn it. So that works. It has light switches on the inside. It has three lights that change color on the inside. On the keyboard, it has LED light strip. Each of the stairs slide into each other and have lights within them with wiring that go through and plug into the piano. The piano plugs into a light board and the boxes underneath are black so that it kind of looks like the piano's floating. Even though obviously when you're up close, you know that the boxes are there, but it's pretty cool to see that from far away. And the fact that Mandy Flame, who built all of that, we only met one? Did we meet one? No. We only talked about this on email. So she built that whole thing based on email and uh, she made it fit and nest inside my Suburban so that I can, it's within like a half inch on either side of the wheel wells inside my Suburban to fit. And I believe it's only a few inches shorter than a baby grand piano in real life. That is amazing. I love the the guitar as well, the six foot guitar, Prince guitar. I don't know. I think it's a little extra in a way that as I've worked on the act, I don't know that I need it, but I do love it. So I've tried to keep the incorporation with it, but I probably, you know, when we talk about props, you need to actually pay attention to your props and use your props. If you're going to bring it on stage, I probably could pay a little more attention to it. I also have to incorporate, I can't be on my props the whole time, like a kid playing on a playground. I kind of have to pay attention to the audience and myself as well. So that's that mix. The Nagel Act with the picture frames, those started out with picture frames from Ikea and a mirror from Ikea. 
And then when I got into Beehoff, Sawyer rebuilt two of the frames and then put them on legs that were black so that they would look like they're floating as well, trying to make them look like they're not on legs. You have 15 seconds to get on the Beehoff stage and off, including props. And that's it. So there's three frames. And then this, we call it the cat tree. It's that flat round thing. And so the cat tree can be flipped up on its side and rolled out like a wheel or a tire. And then the picture frames that Sawyer rebuilt and put on wheels where they can just be, you could take two in one hand and roll it out and the third one in your other hand and roll them all out together and then place them. So you had 15 seconds to get them out there. And that's how those were built. And I love that act. I can't stand that. It's only three and a half minutes long, but I love every second of it. If we move on to the most recent one, the Total Eclipse of the Heart one that pretty much took us all out as far as the amount of work and frustration that went into all of it was, you call it tedious curves, that round thing that lights up. Um, Basically, we're trying to create a dial that goes to 11. And in all the creations and all the ideas and drawings that we had, what it came out to be is ambiguous circle that lights up and gets to the other end like ends up lighting up as the act goes and gets to the other end with the interpretation that it's going to 11. Mm-hmm. You don't really care if the audience gets that or not, but that was the point. I had also considered putting numbers on it as well. It takes away that sort of newbie burlesque feel as well. It can be used in multiple acts. If the act is set up properly and that I execute it properly, people will get it to a certain, whatever degree they want to get it. The other part of that act would be more costume oriented, but it's still a fucking prop is that coat, that 80s fur coat. We sewed in 400 Christmas lights that are programmable on an app on my phone that the app was not quite ready to handle a burlesque act. So it's It's ready to handle your Christmas tree and some Christmas lights in your window, but not a choreographed burlesque act. So it took all the energy and everything I could muster up to the second night of the show to get it to work because everything wouldn't work properly. And you have to reorganize all the lighting designs you put in into order every single time you plug the coat in. So We had 24, I think it was 24, when we ended up with lighting designs that had to be reordered as soon as we plugged the coat in. But you can only plug the coat in for so long because the batteries, we made it battery operated and the batteries only lasted up to an hour. We assumed they would only last 20 minutes because some of the tests came back that they were only lasting 20 minutes, especially when all the lights are on in the coat. I mean, they all looked really cool, but the coat looked really cool. And I really enjoyed like seeing you build that out and sharing some of it on social media. I think if I didn't share it, I probably would have imploded. The one um, I didn't mention though, the Victorian Act, and you had probably seen that in research of Behoff videos. And that was the one year that I got to open all of Behoff on Thursday. It was interesting because half the audience wasn't there yet and they left the audience lights on, which I thought was interesting. The whole theater lights were on. The whole time? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Maybe not the whole time. You know, I might be exaggerating. It might have been the whole time. But I remember going on stage dancing. I'm like, are they ever going to shut off the lights? Because I could see everybody. Hello. <laughs> it was really weird. <laughs> but on that um, note of that Victorian act, that act I did, that's the one, you know, circling back to when I told you at the strip club that my mom had made this piano that my friends could roll me out on. It was that act. It was that music. And so that music has been with me for over 20 years. And it's been edited every time I've done burlesque ever, you know, when I did 
when I stripped with it, I won showgirl the year with it and then had to go to regional showgirl the year with it. I had a Victorian gown then, and I still have it, but I can't fit in it because I'm not 110 pounds or however much I weigh. Those props were, I, they weren't the same, but the idea was there. So the shadow screen, I had a shadow screen on stage when I was a stripper, instead of being at a tiny piano, like I am now. I had that piano that my mom made that was on wheels. And so, like I said, my two friends from the nightclub would be shirtless and they would put these uh, ropes around them and pull me out to the beginning of O Fortuna out in the strip club. <laughs> like this little idea of a strip club and pull me out. Now I have to bring my own strobe light to many places, but in the strip club, there was strobe lights, obviously very strong strobe lights. My favorite through line of our conversation so far, like even as we were warming up, is your commitment to lighting. Oh, I fucking love lighting so much. I can't even handle it. I can't. (laughs) I love lighting. In burlesque, right? Like good lighting does wonders. It does. And I feed off of it. Sometimes I don't notice it's happening. So as long as I have an idea that it's going to happen, I'm good. When you're on stage, sometimes you're so bathed in it that you don't know what's happening. Like, for example, when I went to Texas Star Burlesque in December and performed in in Trees, Dallas, I knew they were doing kick-ass lighting. But I didn't know the level until I saw the photos. That was an interesting one. I'm like, I did not see a lot of that when I was on that stage, which is really cool that there was that much going on. But normally I can feel it and I feel like I almost eat it up or like soak it into my body and then like throw it back at the audience. That seems very (laughs) in line with you. Like, yeah, totally. That's what's happening. Okay, let's like circle back to the props themselves. You know, you talked a little bit about bringing them out to Behoff and like all of the magic of 15 seconds and your great team that engineered things so that can work. But how do you store them? Like how do you get them to places? Like what? Like tell me more about like the logistics behind your props and you and performing. I feel like me on stage can't show the audience enough how much I love a song. And the only way to bring it up to another level or take it to 11 is to add props. And it's not saying that I'm not enough. It's saying that I'm enough, but I also, I like, I physically need these things to show you my love of these songs. I can't. And also to help all of us visualize what I see the song to be. Cause sometimes it's not just me dancing on stage. Sometimes it is, but, um, but when it's not, and when there's props, it's, I'm just saying that visually, this is what I see this song to be in the realm of the amount of money I have to spend and the stages that we get to dance on and the level that I'm at. So, you know, would I like bigger, even more detailed props? Sure but I don't have money for that. So, so we go with what's in my wheelhouse. As far as transporting them, everyone's been awesome at making them fit into my vehicles. And then when I'm headlining gigs or even just in regular gigs where I'm a regular performer, it's making sure that someone there or two people there are willing to help me before I ever get there, like asking way far in advance that people are going to be there to do that. And it's interesting to hear people before and after, you know, you'll have other burlesque bins or other partners helping get all the shit into the venue because no venue is easy to get into. Like you have to sometimes turn the piano completely straight, vertical up and down. And you have to be careful because of all the lighting and electronics on it, in it. So you can't just like 
flip it up and then walk through. You have to be like, and slow and walk. They're not bitching about it, but you can see they're just like, what the fuck? Like we all are. I even do that with myself. I'm like, what the fuck? I've, why are we doing this? But then they see the act and they're like, oh, I get it now. And I, I'm sure people who maybe are still think what the fuck, just don't say anything. But a lot of people come up and say, like, I see what you're trying to build. And it, yep, t- totally makes sense. And it was super fucking cool. Yeah. Absolutely. Everything I've seen of yours, super fucking cool. Impressive. Dedication. And you know, the other thing I do when I go to shows too that have to set up (laughs) the stage kittens who have to set up the piano or at least slide it out. We get it set up before it's ever going to come out, but there's some special handling to get it out because of the ball of wiring in that. And also to run it, it, the lighting actually has to be the button on the laptop has to be hit at the exact same time as the song starts. Otherwise, the lighting's fucked up. It actually hasn't fucked up yet, which is really great. So everyone's been on it. Whoever's in charge of hitting that button has hit the button properly. I always put a full vote of confidence into the people who are pulling it out and do like actually handling the props. Because I feel like if, you know, I do fuss over it beforehand, but I'm like, look, we've done what we could fucking do. And now it's up to the live performance. There's nothing else we can do to make this go. So let's just fucking do it. Like there's no, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And they don't know that the the piano was supposed to light up. It's still a cool piano. So let's just do it. With the Victorian Act, the light turned on before I went back behind it and then shut off when I was behind it. So I had to take off the dress in the dark with no one seeing it. So they're just standing, like sitting there waiting <laughs> while I was behind the, cur- the curtain. And so I kind of like stuck my hand out underneath the curtain to wave at them. And then I came back out. I guess I could have come back out, but I was like, maybe, because you don't know in that moment if the lighting person is actually going to catch that they fucked up and then like fix it or not. So you just stay back there going, eh, well, I'll just keep going in my regular routine and come back out. So, uh, so I've done that, but to like be mad or anything is just dumb. It's it's live performance and there's nothing. As long as you've prepared everyone and given everyone the tools to be successful, that's all you can do. I think it's funny when things fuck up. So I don't care. Right. So you obviously have all of these impressive props, really impressive, super entertaining, high production quality acts. Something that I've heard, rumor, rumors out there in the burlesque world, word on the street is that by day, you are an accountant. That's your day job. And obsessed with Excel spreadsheets. I heard that you choreograph your numbers with Excel spreadsheets. I think the way that our dear friend Paul Lewis mentioned it was, you know, you're authentically yourself on stage and off so much so that the daytime accountant comes out to play with nighttime burlesque (laughs) via Excel spreadsheets. I mean, that's not exactly what he said, but that's kind of what Paul said. No, no, I can see it actually. I can hear it. (laughs) It's not a secret that I use Excel spreadsheets for creating an act. And it's definitely not a secret that I'm an accountant. So no more words on the street. I do use Excel to build acts because one, I need to break down to the beat, sometimes to the beat, sometimes to a riff, sometimes to just a song line level, what I plan to do on stage because That helps me build choreography because I'm not a dancer. I don't count on the eights or anything else. I don't have choreography in my back pocket. 
but I still need to see it all broken down. And I also need to write down all my ideas so that even if I don't use them in the moment or I take them away and add something else, that I have them collected somewhere in case something isn't working once I put it on stage. So I love uh, knowing how long a riff or a phrase is. So I break down the songs into seconds. As far as being an accountant, I, I finally got my dream. Having an MC announce me as what a muggle introduction would be. So here it goes, if I remember it correctly. Next up, we have Karen. She's a 44-year-old accountant from Indiana here to do a little striptease for you. And that's my intro for being an accountant and a stripper. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was an over 40 show, and so they, they said it for me. I was like, yes, thank you. Karen, the accountant. Here to do a little striptease for you. Yeah. Yep. It's a little you know, yeah. It's a little ditty. You know, from, from the Midwest, from Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Iva, one of the things that I really want to ask you about, and it is, I think, by the time this episode publishes, is definitely in the throes of this season. I want to ask you about your Burlesque Hall of Fame experience. You've been up there seven times you've performed in the burlesque hall of fame starting in 2011 where you were in the best debut category with your fire starter act of the last nine years since then you've been on that stage seven years right mm -hmm. like seven that times that's wild that is wild and it never i never take that for granted ever and i never assume ever that i'm going to get in no matter how many times you get to be on that stage like never assume that you're going to get in again because it's not easy. Yeah, I've been on, let's see, I've done Best Debut once, Queen twice, and my favorite night, Movers, Shakers, and Innovators four times, which is a huge honor. Absolutely huge honor. So first year would be Firestarter. Second year was my relaxed cowboy act, which is on hiatus due to the costume. Third year was Psalm 69 fire, uh, fan dance. Fourth was, was it Queen? Yes. Fourth year was Queen with Filthy Gorgeous. Fifth year was Victorian in Movers Shakers. Sixth year was Rio, or not Rio, um, Girls on Film, the Nagel Act in Queen. And then the seventh year was my Annie Lennox impersonation. Does it ever get easier to do it? Yes. Yes. That, okay. that it does. The stage starts to not feel like a football field eventually. Yeah. That first one, if you watch Firestarter, I humped across the stage because I was told you have to use the stage. And I was sitting there on stage thinking, oh God, I'm not walking around enough to, <laughs> I should travel. <laughs> so I thrusted forward. That was my traveling technique. I think you're in a very unique position of being someone who's been up there so many times to get, I guess, familiar familiarity is such a strange word to use in this context, like for this event, but that's what it is, right? But four minutes does go by really fucking fast. Do you have any like special memories or like anything you want to talk about specifically about any of your BHOF experiences? The best debut, I do remember, I, well, it's probably through the video, humping the stage. Uh, I do remember feeling on top of the world. 
and that best debut. Uh, one thing that I do different than maybe some other performers, and not everybody, but it feels like it when you see certain things on social media so often that you feel like, am I the only fucking one? When I walk on stage, there's nothing more I can do. Whatever I'm going to do in the moment and whatever happens is what happened. There's no, I should have done this. I should have done that. I could have done this. I didn't do this. There's none of that because there's nothing you can fucking do. And you just have to enjoy it. You don't have to. I'm going to go ahead and enjoy it while I'm up there. And so one thing I always do, no matter what, is enjoy it. And you can see that in Filthy Gorgeous because my choreography was pretty fucking slippery and uh, not very crisp. I definitely was just having the time of my life because I'm like, I got into Queen. And there's always uh, rumors and weird things that people say behind the scenes of of the competition. And one thing is, is when someone like me gets into queen, it's like, Oh, they're just putting a weird one in there just to whatever. And I was like, I don't care. I'll totally be the weird one. I don't want to say I didn't take it seriously. I did take it seriously. Cause when you're, you sit there and think, Oh, I'm not, I'm not in the competition, which I'm not actually, I don't know how to compete because I'm not going to try to be better than someone else's art. How the fuck do you art better than someone else? Doesn't make any sense. But when you get up there, you're like, okay, my competition side is, I'm just going to do the best I can in the moment that I have. And that's it. And there's nothing else I can do. And so that's where you kind of all of a sudden get a little serious and go out there. But then when I was out there, I was like, fuck, you know, I'm dancing around a filthy gorgeous. So that was cool. When I did queen again for Nagel, that felt real. That act is not really a queen act. What do you mean? But by that? it felt like I could win. Like I had nailed it so well that to me personally, I mean, when you watch it, there's some things, but I, I was like, holy shit, maybe, maybe. Uh, one thing that I wish uh, the judges that year would have been uh, witty, not saying they aren't, but witty in the moment, because I've heard judging is fucking hard as fuck at Behoff. And I don't know how they don't go to the bathroom because I usually have to pee like four times during the, comp- at least maybe six times during the competition because you're sitting there trying to stay awake and I drink coffee and stuff. Judging, I'm sure it's really fucking hard, is someone mentioned, would it have been cool if I won most classic? for the queen eighties act. And I was like, Oh my God, I wish someone would have given me a most classic award for being the most classic eighties I could be. And that would have just made my goddamn life. Uh, And then I would say with Annie Lennox, the last time I performed, even though it's only a three, three minute, 15 second act, I didn't feel rushed because I've done that act for over a decade and it's in my body. So like there was no, Like I have to get over here. Like I remember walking out like, hello, motherfuckers. Like there was no anything. It was really cool. And it was, I just enjoyed myself so that the audience could enjoy me. Since we're in the Beehoff season, in the lead up to Beehoff, do you have any advice for those folks that are going to be up on that stage? Inga said it best. And, um, and I want to follow that is she practiced every day, every day day. I'm totally riffing off of this. So I'm not sure if this is what she said or if I'm making it up, but that she ran it once just like to get it in her body and then would run it with music too. So once was just kind of like going through the motions. Then the next one was really like hitting it. I hadn't seen anyone do that sort of dedication or I just didn't know about it. She's the first person I ever heard do that sort of dedication. And it makes sense. I think if you're going to compete for queen to get that sort of dedication behind you, if you truly want to put your best up there and not worry about your choreography at all, but instead worry about the experience. 
because then it's in your body and you don't have to worry about it anymore really as yeah um for i feel like for best debut is interesting because best age best debut a lot of the people who get in that is their best act to date and so that's i think why the best debut category is so amazing is and always so interesting to watch is because it's people's best acts and they got in a beehoff with that. Whereas when you get to the queen competition, like take me, for example, if I got in again, for some reason, you're now down to my third, fourth, fifth best act. <laughs> so, unless I, right. unless I just keep creating amazing acts, but like if Firestarter is my best and I did that in 2011 and then Nagel's probably like my second strongest as far as like audience and all of that and next to Prince impersonations and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, like what do I have left <laughs> after seven times on the Beyond stage? When people are like, Oh, queen category is boring. I'm like, well, how many out of all those people that are up there, how many have been up there multiple times and what act are we on that they've already like that they've submitted? Maybe they're not even submitting their third best because that got, that got denied and now we're on their fifth best or whatever. Like it's still fucking amazing because they got in the queen. It just might not be like the level of Holy shit that we see in best debut or because it's one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Like as I've been like, I mean, obviously I'm still like pretty new (laughs) in my little burlesque like universe, but like, that's a thing that I've been thinking about, like the strategy behind it, you know, like, yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot to plot, a lot to think about or like fucking not, right? That's what I try not to, but I get really excited about just knowing. Once I know I'm good either way, like, and it's probably because I've been on the stage seven times, like that probably helps. So to to be really mad if I didn't get in is kind of a dick move. So (laughs) like, damn it. (laughs) Right, right. You're allowed to be sad, but also like, okay. It's fine. Like when I posted last year that I didn't get in, I'm like, please don't say you're sad for me or anything. Like, I don't need, I don't need it. I'm good. I'm just letting you know because I said I applied. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Are you, are you able to enjoy your weekenders? Like, I mean, you've done it like so many times. Like, what is the weekend like for you? Oh, it used to be way worse. Remember, uh, I don't know if you know, Shomai, that I used to rhinestone men's neckwear. And so... Leading up to Behoff, people like it was Serafina and then uh, miscellaneous, we would rhinestone over a hundred ties and bow ties to get them red. Actually, more than that, sorry. We usually sold about a hundred at Behoff, so that means we made over 200. So, yeah, over 200 ties before we even showed up there. And of course, you do it in like the last month. And then my husband likes to camp on the way down, so we drive and we camp. Even when I'm competing for Queen, I'm like, can we not? But, um, but we do. Wow. <laughs> so, we drive down. And and so not only are we vending for three days or four days straight, it was four days for a while there where it was on Sunday too, but also performing and also wanting to give your husband a little attention, like to make sure that he's having a good time and you have friends there and you have to go to the shows and you have to eat. So yes, it was a lot. So it's really lovely to not have the vending part of it. Although now with Burley Con, uh, I manage the, um, less call of fame finishing school at Behoff. So I have that, but I, but there's other people who actually manage it. I just have to make sure that it goes, but you're doing it. You're handling it all with grace. <laughs> <laughs> and I put it on myself. So, you know, whatever. Yeah. 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 You have no one else to blame, but nope. you. <laughs> Serafina is the Fiero and Iva Fiero productions. Again, what I love so much about you and your aesthetic and everything that you're doing is this commitment to 
rock star, rock star ness, right? Mm -hmm. Like just, just that vibe, that feel, that like live concert feel. Obviously, your commitment to lighting in every single way, and that absolutely extends to Ibafiero Productions. Correct. Can you talk to me more about about the production company, about the kinds of shows that you guys are doing, and you know, changes that you recently announced for the future? So Iba Fiero Productions is, like you mentioned, Serafina Fiero, myself, and Emily Leong, who is our lighting designer, who we asked to be a co-producer since she was technically doing lighting for all of our shows. And she has very solid ideas, thoughtful ideas, and rational ideas. Whereas Serafina and I uh, I have the dreamer. Serafina has the pessimistic ideas. So we needed someone kind of in the middle to go, hey, what about this? And think of this. So uh, it was really lovely to have Emily hop on with us uh, for a while. So she still is part of Iba Fiero. Uh, we created Iba Fiero Productions because we wanted to be able to create acts that weren't getting booked in other shows because a lot of shows right now are very theme oriented. And even back then they were pretty theme oriented and I guess ours are as well from a music standpoint, but it allowed us to do whatever the fuck we wanted. And I think it was at Behoff when I learned about Stephanie Blake being in burlesque and the idea that you can ask the, the naughty nurse singer, telegram singer from Ferris Bueller's day off to be your headliner blows my goddamn mind that's I still to this day <laughs> that she would just show up and perform and it was amazing because we had an 80s movie show and she was our headliner and then relentless started later in the year when sarah and i did a two-woman show that where we had all these ideas bubbling up in our bodies and minds and nowhere to put it and so we thought it would be funny to do a two-woman show and have other people perform in between us just to give us enough time to get dressed and so we did that uh, underneath Pike Place Market in the Can Can. And it holds about mm, 60 people and there's no air conditioning. And it was in August and paste, my pasties were flying off my body. And we had shit tons of props in this tiny, tiny little venue. That So the props were taking up the hallway. Um, we had dressers that would dress us and that type of thing so that we could actually be ready for the next act. So that's how Relentless got started. But in general... Our whole idea was to do what we wanted to do when we wanted to do it. And then when we moved over to Theater Off Jackson and met Emily Leong, she sort of changed and brought our vision into life, brought it to life by making our shows rock star. And that's where the whole entire like rock star thing came from. Um, it didn't come from there, but she made it. She made it so. Let's just put it that way. When you ask about like the whole rock star vibe and that, if you think about it, when you look at rock stars and they could be any kind, I always sort of lead or yeah, uh, lean towards more male rock stars than female. Probably because I just grew up with more male rock stars on videos than female. There were some female and they don't have to be rock style, like rock genre. They could be any genre, but have that feel of being a complete individual on stage and doing what they wanted and being who they wanted to be without at least without the idea, I'm sure there was some idea behind, but without, uh, without the idea that someone was telling them what to do and how to be. And I think that is really important to be in burlesque is do whatever the fuck you want and not what you think people uh, want you to be. I see that on social media a lot, which is really weird to me. I'm like, why do you care? I would take it to a step further though, or a step back maybe and say that uh, for me personally and from a rock star perspective, 
I only go so far to still be entertaining because there's no point. No one's going to come see you if you're not actually entertaining. Eventually they're going to stop coming to see you if you're not entertaining to them personally, everyone's different. So what someone finds entertaining is one thing and another person thinks something else is entertaining. So that's different, but, um, but being able to be weird and different, but still be accessible to most audiences is uh, very important to me. So I just want to say thank you to Paul Lewis for thinking that I'm interesting enough to ask Shomai to have me on pasty tapes. Cause that's really cool. I didn't know I was that cool and that interesting. And it was very fun to discuss all the things with you that maybe you don't think of, or I don't think of, I should say, um, as something that people should know about. So thank you, Paul Lewis. And thank you, Shomai. Oh my gosh. Thank you for being on here. And of course, always thank you, Paul Lewis. He's such a huge cheerleader of yours yeah he's yeah so fucking cool and I love you know how I said that my brother got all the wit and uh I I have a special place in my heart for Paul being such a fabulous writer it's just lovely to read his thoughts on everything burlesque Paul Lewis thanks for bringing Iva and I together for this episode of the Pacey Tape we love you thank you love you Paul okay again Thanks, Iva, so much for being on this episode of the Pacey Tapes with me. Where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on the internet, on Facebook, both in my profile and on a performer page. Also on Instagram. I have a Twitter account, but I choose not to go on there and write words. So that's kind of just sitting there sadly. And that's where you can find me. Thanks again, Iva. Just an end note here. Back in February, Iva Fierro Productions announced that they'll be focusing their production efforts on shows in Port Angeles. Keep an eye out on their Instagram and Facebook page at Iva Fierro Productions to learn more about upcoming shows, including their last run of Relentless out in Seattle. I feel like I have so many more questions for Iva Handful now. If you also have more questions for Iva Handful and want a part two episode from her, Send me your questions at thepaceycapes at gmail.com and we'll get the ball rolling. Thank you again to Paul Lewis for sponsoring this episode of The Pacey Tapes. If you want to learn more about sponsoring an episode of The Pacey Tapes, send me an email at thepaceytapes at gmail.com. Thank you again so much for tuning into this episode of The Pacey Tapes. So much love to members of the Pacey Tapes fan club. If you want to join the Pacey Tapes fan club and unlock extra bonus features and some exclusive merch and other cool stuff, visit thepaceytapes.com. You can follow The Pacey Tapes across the internet at The Pacey Tapes. I am your host, Show My More, the steamiest Asian dumpling, and you can find me at Show My More. Tell all of your friends about this podcast, share us on social media, hit that subscribe button, and leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much again for listening to The Pacey Tapes, and I'll talk to you soon. You have been listening to The Pasty Tapes, a burlesque podcast by Show My More, the steamiest Asian dumpling. This is Blanche Debris saying thanks for listening and see you later, ducklings.